Chapter Fifty One of House, Garden, and Field by Elsie Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Museums and the Teaching of Elementary Natural History. The museum is a time-honored resource in the teaching of natural history. What can be more obvious than to preserve striking objects which are only met with at long intervals, arrange them methodically, and study them closely? What more obvious than to be guided in the choice of objects by experts who give their whole time to natural history? The saving of time and thought is immense. The teacher takes his pupils to visit a great collection, selected with infinite pains, and set out with professional skill. Surely he will do more in this way than if he makes a fresh beginning and tries to arrange a little collection of his own. The great public museum is perhaps too distant for frequent visits, and then the school is fired with the ambition of setting up collections of its own. The very effort will be wholesome. Surely everyone will cooperate in building up a museum which shall be to the private collections of the boys what the National Museum is to the little provincial museums. These are our expectations, and we get to work in good spirits. It is easy to start a school museum, and easy to carry it through the early stages of its development. Shells, fossils, bird's eggs, and the like come in freely, many of the specimens being drawn from private collections which have ceased to fascinate, or have been bequeathed to uninterested persons. When gratifying progress has been made for some years, and a great array of named specimens has been set out in due order, disillusion sets in. It is discovered that the museum interests very few persons, and is put, even by those few, to uses which can hardly be called intellectual. Sometimes, for instance, it is valued only as a means of getting the right names to put to the objects in a private collection without the labor of classification. Even then, the school museum may not have been entirely useless. Those who have worked at arranging and classifying will probably be the better for what they have done, but the school generations which inherit their labors will find in time that there is little for them to do but admire, and admiration of other people's work soon ceases to stimulate. Where, then, is the miscalculation? How is it that the method which seems so obvious fails to answer expectation? It is, I think, because an important factor has not received due attention. We have considered what zoology and botany and geology are, and how they can be logically cultivated, but we have not properly considered what the schoolboy is, and what instruction he will accept or refuse. The untrained boy has many individual peculiarities, but two or three things are true of untrained boys in general. They hate copious details, they hate Latin and Greek names, and they are not warmly interested in dead animals and plants protected from all interference by plate glass. Not only schoolboys, but people of all ages, soon tire of being shown a multiplicity of objects of the same kind, all protected by glass. Clapered, an eminent and productive zoologist, has declared that Les musées pèsent lourdement sur la science. I should not be easily persuaded that this is generally true, and that our Natural History Museum at South Kensington, the Museum of Natural History at Brussels, the Hope Collection at Oxford, and the Manchester Museum are encumbrances, of which science would be well rid. Such museums as these secure the progress which zoological science has already made, and train experts who will carry that progress yet further. Instead of admitting that great and well-arranged museums weigh heavily on science, I believe that they should be yet more numerous, more extensive, and more completely systematic than in our day. But I am ready to admit that the nearer they approach to scientific completeness, the less fitted will they become for popular instruction. 
It may be thought practicable to divide the objects in a great public museum into two sets, one arranged to suit the convenience of experts and the other adapted for popular instruction. I have little doubt that such a separation of the collections in any great public museum is prohibited by the circumstance that the visitors are not divisible into two distinct groups. There are intermediate students of many grades, everyone claiming recognition. All the worse for the great public museum as a place of elementary instruction. In the school museum, this difficulty need not be felt, for only the wants of a limited and ready classified set of pupils have to be considered. It would be easy in the school museum to arrange long series of minerals, fossils, shells, birds' eggs, etc., in cabinets, and to display for elementary instruction only the things which can be made to tell their own tale effectively. Few of our public museums are effective for the purpose of popular instruction. One notable example is, however, before us. Our great natural history museum contains many series of objects judiciously selected and skillfully disposed for this very end. Teachers and classes who are near enough to pay frequent visits to the museum may study with every advantage impressive and self-explanatory collections, which will admirably reinforce the comparatively rough preparations made in the school or at home. One caution is necessary. The great museum contains such a wealth of striking objects that the risk of distraction is unusually great. Many short visits would be far better than a few prolonged ones. The pupils should be encouraged to see only a very few things in one day, and these all closely and naturally connected. Museum specimens are such things as skins, skeletons, models, and fossils. They do not show the plant or animal in action. This does not mean that they are of no real utility or interest, but it shows that no museum can suffice for the purposes of nature study. It must be largely reinforced by outdoor lessons, experiments on seedlings, daily observations on nest-building birds, insects undergoing transformation, and the like. There are instances, which I am glad to believe grow daily more numerous, of school museums which are brought together and arranged by the pupils. These, though far less complete, of course, than the museum made and arranged by grown-up people, may be much more stimulating and more useful educationally. I can recommend also the temporary museum, made to illustrate a course of study actually in progress at the time. There need be no high standard of excellence for the admission of objects, and the naming and classification may be rough. The great thing is to enlist the hearty cooperation of many pupils. I do not expect great results from lectures delivered in front of the museum cases, though they may be useful and stimulating at times. It has more than once happened to me to get a valuable lesson by accompanying a master of zoological science round a museum, and I recollect with keen pleasure a little lecture on Roman busts at the British Museum, which I was fortunate enough to overhear. There is no method so poor, but that it can be vivified by a powerful teacher. The museum can be no substitute for the class lesson, and its most costly treasures cannot replace the living plant or animal as the matter to be chiefly studied. If this is conceded, I have no further contention with the advocates of instruction in museums. We shall agree that the herbarium must not hinder us from studying the early purple orchis, growing in the pasture with its pollen masses ready to be removed, that the cabinet of fossils must not take the place of the fossil fresh chipped out of the quarry, and study together with the limestone in which it has lain so long. In general, the museum meets the wants, not of young pupils who are about to receive first lessons in the observation and interpretation of nature, 
but of the few who have already carried their studies beyond the elementary stage. It is a place for the storage of exact and detailed knowledge. I conclude, therefore, that while the usefulness of the museum in elementary instruction is limited, it is a most valuable and indispensable aid to the studies of the specialist. The usefulness of the museum as a means of popular instruction may be increased, but not indefinitely. It can never take the place of the class lesson. Nature study must rely on methods which work by the pupil, exercising his eyes, hands, judgment, independent observation, imagination, and love of doing, rather than on the lecture and the museum, which work for him and chiefly exercise his memory. End of chapter 51